Good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. Grateful to be with you during fall break. Hope you're enjoying break from school, kids. It'll be over before you know it, I'm sure. You know, I can't believe that we're this far into the school year. I, I know for me growing up, it seemed like summer was way too short. Uh, and then we were at this point in the school year, and I was like, I'm, I'm ready for summer again already. Uh, but one thing that my parents tried to do to soften uh, the move back in the school was we get back to school stuff, right? So the process of shopping, I'm learning now as a parent for back to school stuff, is almost purgatorial. Uh, but as a kid, you get new stuff, right? And so for me, it wasn't the backpack that was a thing or the clothes. My favorite thing at the beginning of every school year was a new lunchbox, and uh, I, I see all these soft side lunchboxes now. I know why, because we used to hit each other in the head with our metal ones. And so I understand why they're soft side. But I had a Return of the Jedi lunchbox that I really loved and ended up running over with the bicycle and it's no more. Uh, but my favorite lunchbox was my Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom lunchbox. I love that lunchbox so much. Uh, it quickly became my favorite Indiana Jones film, too. Which is, not, which is not a popular thing to say. Many people didn't like the Temple of Doom because they thought this second installment really moved away from Indiana Jones. It was far more violent, and Indiana Jones himself was far more violent and exacting. As a matter of fact, if you watch all the real films, and there's only three of them, that Crystal Skull thing, I don't know why they made that. But anyway, the three real ones, if you watch them, you'll know that Indiana Jones is very passive. In that last movement, when the villains are undone and, and ended, ultimately, he's not doing anything. He's tied to a stake in one, and he's passively watching in the other one. But in Temple of Doom, he's very active in the end of them. He's active in how he carries out what he does, and people didn't like that. They thought, here's the deal, Lucas and Spielberg, you've moved away from who Indiana Jones ought to be. He shouldn't act like that. He shouldn't be carrying that out in quite that way. Matter of fact, just as a bit of movie trivia for you, the reason you have a PG-13 rating is because of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Spielberg argued there's got to be something between PG and R. It's just not adequate categories, and it was PG, and he caught it for it. That and Gremlins, by the way. But anyway, he caught it for it because they said, this just isn't appropriate for this kind of character archaeology professor, mild-mannered, but action-driven in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he's too violent. This is off the rails. This is not like him. And then they shocked the world by reminding us the Temple of Doom is not a sequel. It's a prequel. It actually took place historically before Raiders of the Lost Ark. So Lucas' argument was this. It actually gives you more of what Indiana Jones is really about. It really gives you a full orb sense of who he is. And if you think all he is, is acting and reacting when he has to with violence, you really don't understand the nature of who he is or what he's ultimately all about. And I fear with Jesus that we are one-dimensional at best many times. He's only about this. He's only this way. And we certainly come to a text like the one we're going to look at today, and we're left puzzled, if not befuddled. Because usually that one dimension consists of very genteel, 
passive, quiet, almost sullen at times. That's who Jesus is. And then the text of Mark eleven fifteen says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Some of you know, because our pastors have been faithful enough as they're preaching through the text, they indicate to us the nature of how this Bible story is related and how certain aspects of a passage fit together. And we want to understand what comes before the passage and what comes after. In Mark's gospel account, he, he likes to employ something called a sandwich, right? Our pastors, they preach, do they talk about that? If you're anything like me, I'm easily distractible. I'm thinking about which is the $5 foot long today, and do I like it at Subway, right? That's not the idea of a sandwich, but it's close, right? The idea in a Markin sandwich is that there's two pieces of bread, what comes before and what comes afterwards, and their intention is to deliver the meat, honestly. All right, that's what bread is for, in case you weren't aware in a sandwich. And so the idea is that these two pieces are clarified. And with laser focus, we see what's happening by what occurs in the middle. Just before what I just read to you, there's this cursing of fig tree that happens. And just after this account, they'll, they'll walk by as they leave Jerusalem, and they'll see that the fig tree's withered. So there is a sense in which we're to understand this is judgment against the nation of Israel because they've not related to God as they ought do. My question is, what is it exactly that they've done? Because I fear that we read this text and we minimize what they've done, how heinous and horrific their guilt is around the core of what Jesus addresses and if we don't give it its full hearing, we minimize how we're supposed to respond to Jesus' cleansing of the temple by simply making sure certain things aren't sold in the sanctuary of a church. By making sure that we don't make money off certain things as a local body or a church. I think Jesus means to say far more to us than that. And I think he intends for us to look ourselves in the mirror much more fully than we have. And he definitely wanted that for the people that he looked upon that day when he cleansed the temple. And so there's two aspects I, I want us to see in the text and from the broader text of Scripture, I think, informing this. The, the first is that Jesus' wrath, this wrath of Christ, is real. The wrath of Jesus here is real. And the wrath of Jesus is real because the love of Jesus is life. The love of Jesus is life. First of all, look in the first couple of verses there, 15, 16. When you look at what Jesus does when he enters the temple, don't forget in verse 11, 
the night before, he actually has already entered the temple. And he's looked on it and seen what's there. But because it's late, they retreat and go to Bethany, which was their custom when they were going to go up to Jerusalem. They would stay overnight many times in Bethany, he and the disciples. He's come and he's actually viewed what's taking place. And in very determined and decisive fashion, he's come back to the temple. This is not flippant. It's not off the cuff. It's not impulsive. This is decisive and deliberate. What Jesus does, he has every intention of doing. When he approaches the temple from the outskirts of Jerusalem, when he makes his way up the long staircase to the court of the Gentiles, this outer portion of the temple when you first entered in, this court was over 300 yards long, 250 yards wide. And it was filled with all kinds of things because it was filled with all kinds of people. It's estimated at the point that Jesus walks into the temple complex. In this year, there were over 3 million people celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. This place is filled wall to wall with people, but also with other things. Exodus 30 is very clear that if you're going to come and you're going to sacrifice in the temple, you're going to do what you ought to do during this festival of Passover, celebrating God's redemption of his people, there's a temple tax to be paid by any man who's over 20 years old. And if you're going to come and pay the tax, you can't pay it with foreign currency because that doesn't play here. And so you have to exchange your currency. You have to change the money. And so there will be tables lining this huge outer court with money changers seated behind it. You give them your currency, they exchange it for a small fee. Back and forth, the money would go. So that you could then pay for the appropriate sacrifice because in most cases you wouldn't have brought it with you. So the other thing that lined this large outer court were stalls, livestock, birds, enclosures for wine and salt. So you could make the appropriate sacrifice that was necessary. So that as you paid it. And as the high priest would enter in and go beyond the court of women, into the court of men, into the holy of holies, into the holiest place and make the sacrifice, you could know that you had devoted yourself in the right way to God. And then on top of all of that that Jesus observed, this was a massive structure. We think that the temple itself, the second temple, was about 35 acres of space. To give you a point of reference, if you're a Colts fan, Lucas Oil Stadium is 41 acres. From a distance, they would look roughly the same. Lucas Oil's taller by about 100 feet, but roughly the same. That is a massive structure to sit in the way if you want to go from one side of a city to another. And although there were strict admonitions not to make this a thoroughfare, People didn't care if they did it anyway. If you wanted to get over to the Mount of Olives, you just went through this temple, but you could only go through this outer court. Money changers screaming, what do you have? 
Place it here. The exchange rate is this. Pay me this. I'll take that. Here's that. Those who brokered and made sure deals happened with livestock, birds, selling the appropriate spices, would shout out what they were willing to take for certain elements of it. The people buying it shouting back. Streaming lines of these people in crowds everywhere yelling. Livestock weren't muzzled. Animals aren't quiet. It's loud. Feces stinks. It reeks in there. And in the middle of all that, you have people trying to shoulder their way through because, man, I just got to get to the other side of the city, and this is the most expedient route. And Jesus comes in and observes that. And I don't know that he actively was thinking on this. But when you read the whole of the Bible, I can't help but imagine what he saw. And remember that the royal porch, which was part of the older temple, the first temple of Solomon, that actually sat against the south side wall of this court of the Gentiles, that was the place that after King Uzziah dies, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord in all his greatness and glory. It says, if that's how great God is, if that's who I'm meant to see and acknowledge gives me a heartbeat in my chest, And life in my body, woe to me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jesus sees this instead happening. And his action is very clear. Jesus moves toward what's going on, and he drives out both the sellers and the buyers. Which, by the way, is a tip-off to you and to me. This isn't just about the people selling things to garner a fee. Because the people had to buy sacrifices to make sure that they could actually exercise what they were supposed to do in devotion to the Lord. They, They thought they were supposed to. He drives them away, too. Not only does he drive them out, he turns over the tables Of the money changers. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where someone's flipping tables over. But usually if that's happening, there's something really bad going down, like an active shooter. Or there's something bad about to go down because the table's not the only thing they're about to put their hand to. It is a violent, loud act. Jesus responds By saying, you will not buy and you will not sell anymore today. And just to ensure you're clear about my message, he flips the tables over. Well, not only that, but I'm sure that everyone who sat out in front of their related stall, whether livestock or wine, salt, whatever was behind them, got up at this ruckus that was now spreading. They could could hear that something was going on. Jesus is going down the line. Where they are flipping their seats over. You won't put your rear end back there. You won't sit there again. This is not okay for you to be indifferent as to what you are doing. But again, they're providing meaningful service to the people who came to worship. So can it really be about what we think it's about? Or is there more here because if all of that wasn't enough, 
Jesus confronts people that are making their way through the temple and says, you'll turn around and go back where you came from. You're not using this as a cut through. You'll go out that way. That's where you came in. You're not doing this. Everyone is floored at this point. The money changers looking at coinage all over the ground. The livestock brokers who are looking behind them and looking around, wondering what in the world he would do this for. The people that have made long, arduous journeys to the temple for Passover that are going, how are we going to do what we're supposed to do now? And even the people that thought they were going to get to the other side of the city on time now are, are late and maybe feel threatened by his actions that they're not allowed to pass through there anymore. And Jesus does all of that with this backdrop. Remember in Matthew 17 that the question is, does, does your master, Peter, does he pay the temple tax? Yeah, we all pay the temple tax. Jesus doesn't think there's anything wrong with paying a temple tax. Matter of fact, he understands that in the law he's supposed to do that. He certainly doesn't think that there's anything wrong with the sacrifice that had taken place in the temple. We could, we could argue with quite a degree of confidence that he instituted the sacrifices that are taking place in the temple. He doesn't have a problem with people making their way from one place to another. There's no inherent ethical or moral issue there. And yet, collateral damage is everywhere after what he's just done. Everything inside that court that he put his hand to is wrecked or been pushed out. And we would tend to think, oh, that's what it is. He's driving them out. He's stopping these things because of what's in here. What's in here is the problem. No, the problem is what's not in there. That's the problem. Or more directly and severely, who's not in there? The issue in Mark's account of this cleansing is intended to show the wrath of Jesus. Directed at the fact that they took up the only square footage that was available with great intention for people that weren't a part of the nation of Israel. And the reason you know that he exercised this in this way is what he's about to say when he teaches them. And so don't miss this. No one disagrees that studies the Bible, even at a level of academic scholarship. There used to be debate on whether or not this occurred historically. There's no debate about that. Everybody agrees that it happened. They disagree about why it happened. But Jesus doesn't really leave a whole lot of room for guessing why it happened. Because he tells us directly, and that brings me to the second point. Not only is the wrath of Jesus very real, this really happens. But the wrath of Jesus is real because the love of Jesus is life. I mean that in both connotations. I mean that Jesus expressing love to us is life. He defines it that way. But experiencing your life, if you're a man, woman, child, 
whoever you are, experiencing life itself as it's intended to function in glory and honor granted to God who experienced by faith in Jesus. And by doing that, we, we love him. So how, how do we get that from flipping over tables, knocking over seats, and disallowing people to go through the temple court? Well, I get it in part because it says that as he was doing this, he's teaching them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm teaching, I can get a little distracted by, I don't know, a paper clip hitting the floor, right? Keeping my concentration laser-focused on what I'm progressing through to teach is quite challenging, especially if I'm trying to do something. I'm not, just not a good multitasker, all right? I'll just confess that to you. I know I'm supposed to be. I'm just terrible at it. Like when people are like, hey, just watch the ball game and do, okay, you already lost me. I can't I watch the ball game. I can do that, but I can't do the and thing, whatever you're about to say, all right? One thing at a time, one thing at a time. Jesus, in the midst of the cleansing event itself, is teaching them. Which, by the way, is your first tip-off that he's expressing, even in his rebuke of them, love. In the gospel narratives, in the gospel accounts we have, when Jesus wants to care for those who are like sheep without a shepherd, what does he do? He teaches them. He understands that he has come to teach the truth because he is the truth. So he's teaching them, but what he teaches them is our key to understanding why he would do any of this. And so he teaches them based around two passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. He uses these two texts to remind them from the major prophets. They all knew Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were familiar, at least with the prophets. Most of them who are in earshot of this are familiar with the ideas. But what's interesting is... They're already having a really hard time hearing this from this guy. And you know why that is? Because he's about to appeal to God's intent ultimately. What is God doing all this for? What did he establish the temple for? Why does he have a people for himself? What is he driving all this toward? And you know what their popular notion was? Well, we know what he's supposed to do right now when this Savior he promised us comes. This Savior's going to come in and he is going to kick the Romans out of town. He's going to take all the Gentiles and get them out of this place. Take all the Gentiles and get them out of this place. Away from us so we can be rid of them and be who we were supposed to be. And Jesus' instruction from these major prophets is exactly the opposite of that. Here's what these two texts say. I'm only going to read portions of it for you. We read Isaiah 56 earlier. Verse 7 of Isaiah 56, these, these people, the eunuch, the foreigner, the son of a foreigner, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel, those who aren't a part of Israel, 
declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The foreigner, the son of a foreigner, has no life. I mean, you're a foreigner. Life is found in being a part of the people of God. You're not a part of the people of God. You're from another nation. You you might as well be an animal. There's really no difference in our sight. Because you're a foreigner. You're not one of us. Not only that, but the eunuch. What do you not have? Man, you got no reputation and you got no heritage. Nobody's coming from you. You get nothing in the coming generation because you got nothing in the coming generation. And you're damaged goods on top of it. You two people, the foreigner and the eunuch, you have nothing. We're not even thinking about how to include you. And somehow, God in his care ultimately is bringing all things together That even the one who seems to have no life or heritage will have a better heritage. A better life than those who think that this person has nothing. And the person who thinks that they're outcast, they have no part with the people of God, God's going to include them. And here's how. Because they believe and hope in God. They they hope in Him. They trust in Him. Because He's made a way for even people who are outcasts, people who seem to have no point of belonging, those who are utterly different than who these people think the people of God are, those people will be brought in. And they'll ultimately be brought into His place and be a part of His people by faith. And the temple itself, this court of the Gentiles, was intended to paint a picture for the people. That, oh, we worship our God. And one day, one day, He's going to gather men and women and children from all the nations to worship Him. And, and we're reminded of that as we make sacrifices because there's a man, there's a woman, there's a little kid with his family. And they're not Israelites, but they're here. They're here to pray to God, the God we worship. The God we exalt, the God we hope in. What he cleanses the temple from is disregard for those who are outside of Israel. And he says, you will not disregard them any longer because I don't. And if this house is called by my name, which is a reminder to them, who, who else or what else is called by my name? You. You're a people called by my name. If you're the people called by my name, and this is my house called by my name, and I say that ultimately this is meant to show you that I'm going to gather all nations to worship me, someone from every people group in the world is going to worship me, then this court is not simply for you to be more expedient to do what you need to do. Because worship isn't just about you. It is principally about God himself. And he defines how he desires to be worshipped so that he would gain glory and we would be stirred with joy forever. And he does that because he wants all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of people to worship him. Not one kind. From one place. 
in one generation or one era. He gains glory. And people find joy in him from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. That is his design. And the temple was intended to picture that to them. To represent that to them. So he quotes Isaiah 56 and reminds them that this is to be for all nations. But he also cites Jeremiah 7, 11, or an element of it. I want to read for you this, this second. It's very short. Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. If you're not careful, you hear him say den of robbers, and again, we think about, let's make sure we don't sell merchandise inside the worship center, right? That, that's all he's after right now. I wish that was all he was saying, frankly. That would be so much easier to deal with. But do you hear this list of grossly horrific, immoral acts that have become patterns in their lives? The way that they express their idolatry is brazen. And they will do it and do it and do it. And then they will come to this house called by his name. And they will say, we're delivered by God because we belong to him. And he says, in your eyes, has this structure transformed? In your eyes, when you look at it, do you still see the place that I gave to you? to come and gather with God's people to relate to me? Do you still see it? Or has metamorphosis changed it in your eyes? Is your sight that poor that now you look at it and go, we can be immoral. We can be rife with sin. And we can come in here all we want because it's like a den where robbers go after they steal. It's a place they seek refuge even though they're criminals. You know what they're robbing here, at least in Jesus' usage in Mark 11? They're not robbing by taking the temple tax because Je Jesus pays the temple tax. They're not robbing because they're making sacrifices to God because God implemented the sacrificial system. They're robbing glory from God and they are robbing life from these people. The place that they could come to understand and look on the people of God, the nation of Israel, God's people, and recognize that he promises hope to those who will hope in him even outside the nation. Ultimately, he's going to bring all these people to worship him. That one place where they can come that signifies that to them and to the nation of Israel is a flea market. The one place that was intended to signify hope to them. There's indifference instead. There's no thought of the outcast. There's no thought of the one outside. 
the hope of the gospel or the grace and mercy of God. Jesus comes with decisive action. He pours out wrath to show this is never okay for you or me to be indifferent to the outcast. The one who is different than us, the one who lives in another nation from us, the one who doesn't speak like us, the one who sexually doesn't understand how they ought to belong to God and owe their life to Him, the one who logically doesn't understand the reality of who God is and the hope of the gospel has not invaded and given them joy and hope in Jesus. I don't get to determine who gets told the truth about Jesus. I don't get to determine who has access to the truth. And I sure don't get to determine who's welcome to worship with the people of God. I don't get to determine that. They thought they did. We'll decide which nations, our nation in particular, has full access to God. Other nations aren't as deserving, clearly. And they've missed the totality of the Old Testament and extensively the totality of the canon of Scripture if they think they deserve any of it. Any of it. And you and I have missed the totality of Scripture and the person and work of Jesus himself if we think we deserve it. We don't deserve it. We deserve death and hell. That's very clear from the fact that in creation God fashions a place without blemish. And he crafts this creation and he makes man and woman and he places them in this place. And he pledges to be their God and you are my people. And in the face of that, they rebel they, they want to be self-determined, not determined by what God says is right or good or joyful or, or happy or meaningful. And they rebel and fall into sin. And God in His mercy is not thrown off. And He's not put off. On the heels of that, He promises there's a man that will come. In Adam, he will be a better Adam. He will be a second Adam who doesn't do what you do. He's your hope. And not only is he your hope, by the time we get to the point of the rebellion that continues to occur, and in Genesis 11 we have the Tower of Babel, and now you have multiple languages and ethnicities that now stream out and are spanning the inhabited world at that point. In the midst of that... Panorama, you have this promise coming to Abraham. Not only will I bless you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This seed of woman who is to come, this promised better Adam, he's going to come through Abraham's line. And we get clarity ultimately that he will come through David's line. But he's not just going to come and reign and Rule, he is going to do that, this Messiah, this Savior. But John the Baptist looks on the one who is the promised one and says, Behold the Lamb of God. 
who takes away the sin of the world. He is coming into the world to free the world from sin. That all those who might hope in him might actually have hope. Not feigned hope, not pretend hope, actual hope that never wanes, ever. Jesus is fully aware of who he is and what he has come to do. And when he enters this temple, he does exercise wrath. That ought to be a sobering caution, not only to this nation as judgment falls and clarity is brought that the Gentiles will be brought in, but also to any of us who think that he desires otherwise because not only does he come and sacrifice himself, but he's raised from the dead three days later. And that signals something incredibly important because if you're not aware, he actually does this twice. He's already cleansed the temple once. In John chapter 2, in the first year of his ministry, we're now year 3, he's already gone into the temple and cleansed it. And it's interesting that when he goes in and cleanses the temple, the leaders, the appropriate priests come to him and say, why don't you give us a sign that it's okay for you to do all of this? And what they intend to say is, there's nothing okay with you doing all of this. And here's what Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When this all happens, what do they want to do in this cleansing in Mark 11? They want to destroy him because they fear him and they should. They fear him because the people are amazed. They fear him because he's come in and wreaked havoc in that way, and they're not really stepping up to the plate to address it in any meaningful way. They fear him because this is the second instance where it's taken place. And they fear him likely because he doesn't just stand and overturn tables and seats and drive people out. He stands on God's word emphatically saying from the prophets that you trust, you say you trust them with everything, you should have known this day was coming. You should have known that this was sin. And you should have known that hope in God means that the outcast and the distanced one and the one who's not just like you and is very different from you, that God intends to include all kinds of people among his people in union with his son. Worship of God and the welcoming of people who are outcasts, those things cannot be separated. It is the worship of God. To welcome people to speak the truth to them. The reason that Jesus' wrath exercise is an exhibition of his love is because in the midst of, of this judgment taking place, he's offering the truth to say, that this is how you know love because I've come to tell you that sin is not 
going to lead to flourishing and health. The gospel, this, this grace, this truth, believing in me, that, that's going to lead you to know me, to honor me, to worship me. He makes very clear to the high priestly prayer in John 17. Like, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. If these people can't have access to the truth of God, they can't know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And they can't have life. They can't experience God's love demonstrated specifically to them so that they would repent of sin and exalt him forever and express love in return to him because they've first been loved by him. That's why you can't separate your worship, my worship, from welcoming the outcast, from actually saying to them, I, I value you as a person. I don't condone your sin because I genuinely love you. Just like Jesus wasn't going to condone their sin, he's genuinely expressing love. But understand that ultimately Jesus can found everything on these promises because he's paid everything. If he says that when this temple is destroyed, his body is dead, three days later he will rise from the grave. He makes something very clear. That not only is he the promised king that they hope for, he's clearly a prophet who's standing in the line of the prophets, but yet he's, he's appealing to them and he's taking the activity of God on himself to cleanse this temple. This, this divine wrath unleashed. Not only is he doing that, but he's very clearly, when he's sacrificed on the cross, the priest who sacrifices the lamb. He's both. And he sheds his blood in the place of all those who will hope in him, even people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And some of those people are unthinkable to us if we're honest with one another. Those people in that place will never believe in Jesus. Those people that think that marriage is that, which it's not, they'll never believe in Jesus. Those people that might be incapacitated in some way or mentally might not be as sharp as you are because there are challenges. They, <laughs> they can't believe in Jesus. They would never do that. So at the end of the day, let's be opportunists, right? Let's go where the radar's hot. Let's go in places that are easy to reach. People that live in the same strata that I live in, that have the same color skin I have, use the same words I have, listen to the same music, watch the same TV station. Because at the end of the day, whether you or I want to recognize it or not, and I, I mean me too, what you are saying in effect, what I'm saying in effect is, people like me are the only people that deserve the gospel. That, that's what we're doing functionally. We, I pray we'd never say that out loud, but that's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing. And there are tremors of this text in that. There are reminders in that. Where we need to trust God to display the truth of the gospel in interactions with individual people and to the ends of the earth. that almost half of the world's population is unreached by the gospel, that ought to tell you that cross-cultural missions isn't a hobby horse for some of us to think is important. 
Jesus' spirit, his attitude, and the truth spoken won't allow that for our church or for us as individuals. And the fact that there are people among us in our town, in our city, that work with us, that go to school with us, who are outcasts, they're not a part of the people of God by faith in Jesus. That has got to burden us. It's got to burden me. I trust that God would give us the spirit that I, I do see playing out, even in Mark's gospel account. And if you remember Mark 5, it, it's one of my favorite stories in his account, not because it needs to be elevated among any others, but in Mark 5, Jesus crosses the sea and he encounters the demon-possessed man. Now, I'm going to tell you the full story, but here's what strikes me about that. He encounters him. He, he actually exorcises the demons. He, he removes them, sends them into the swine, and then you've got pig carcasses everywhere, right? And, and the people that have been trying to bind this person push them away. I mean, this is the guy that you're walking by. You hide your kid's ears because you're going to hear some stuff that your kid doesn't need to hear, Right? You likely hide their eyes because he'd been cutting himself with glass and shards of things to try to release some of the anguish. He's crying out day and night, and he's in a place of death. He's in tombs. Like, nobody goes to tombs unless you're going to bury somebody and you get out. These are not sanitized cemeteries that you and I go to. He's over there in that place. Nobody even goes over there anymore. They can help it. Jesus comes, confronts him again decisively, steps toward him, frees him from that, and then the people see what happens. They see the destruction of the pig, and they see this guy sitting in his right mind, right? He's, he's not out of control any longer. And he's there, and what do they do? Clearly, Jesus has to be a witch. He's got to be a sorcerer, so leave, Jesus. That's their response. Isn't it? Man, this guy is freed. Look, look at this. There's not an ounce of that in them. Anybody could do this, man. You get out of here. And then what should be so clear to us that any of us, I would think we would do. He looks at Jesus and says, they don't want me here. You just freed me. Can I please go with you? It says he begged him. And Jesus says no. And that's odd. Jesus, you're just incredibly compassionate you just freed him no one could do what you did and he just wants to be with you aren't we supposed to follow you he doesn't let him go he tells him instead you need to go back where you're from and and you need to tell what the lord has done for you so it says that he goes back and throughout all the decapolis he tells what jesus has done for him, and the people were astonished. The Decapolis was full of Gentile people. So when you and I make comments like, Paul is the first cross-cultural missionary, just put a little asterisk there. You don't have to say he wasn't. I'm just saying that at least in the front end of declaring the truth, that Jesus might have freed him, that Jesus might have shown compassion on him. He preceded Paul. And he went throughout those cities telling the truth about what Jesus had done. And here was a guy who was written off. Here was a guy who had no place with anyone. And Jesus' intention is not simply to free him. 
to recognize and honor the greatness of Christ, but it was to free him so that he might declare that to others. And that's actually what Isaiah says in Isaiah 56. These people are going to be brought into me and others are going to be brought by them too. My hope for us as a church that when we say what we're about, and we say it, we say it every service, it's on our slides, we're about loving Jesus, loving people, and helping people love Jesus. I love that. And only for the sake of this sermon, and so that the Lord might clarify for us, when you think about who we are as a body, I would say in light of this text, we, we're to love Jesus with all that we are. And we're supposed to help all kinds of people love Jesus. And that's the focus of what we do as a church. What we do as a church is exalt him. Acknowledge him and long for others to come to know him too as we declare the truth of the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our city, and around the world, wherever God gives us opportunity to do that. So I pray that God would in his kindness, even as the worship team comes to lead us, that God in his kindness would actually allow us to consider what's here. I mean, these people were trying to be quite faithful in what they were doing, their version of faithfulness. And at the end of the day, they thought that keeping themselves in a certain fashion and really as a matter of course, not recognizing what they were doing to those who were outcasts and certainly not thinking about what does God say in his word he wants to do that he is going to do. I pray that our church, I pray that us as individuals, as families, wouldn't be guilty of that. I pray that we look at those different than us. I pray we look at those who were outside of the gospel and plead with the Lord to save them and recognize that we're the means to communicate that to them. We're the means to offer them hope in Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll sing. God, we would pray that you would make that a clear mark of who we are. We are so grateful, God, that you do have us as a church that's committed to the people in our community, committed to see the gospel preached, declared, shared, offered. To those who are incarcerated, to those who are not sure what to do with the baby that's coming or on the way, those who aren't sure what to do with life because they have no place to call their own, with, with those who are in our homes, those who live on our street, God, you do have us mindful of this. I would pray, God, that you would wed so tightly in our thinking our worship of you and how we express that worship in declaring the gospel to people who aren't like us, people who aren't with us, and that we would welcome them to hope in Jesus and that you would provide everything that they need to be overjoyed in you so that they would turn around to others and speak about what the Lord has done for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.